This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Welcome to the World War II Radio Podcast. The goal of this podcast is to deliver radio broadcasts you would have heard them 80 years ago during the days of World War II. Our episodes will be a mix of entertainment, news, and other information. You'll hear each episode as close to the original date as possible, some additional bonus episodes thrown in that include related content. This week, we have the November 17th, 1940 episode of CBS's The World Today, Offering news and information updates from Washington and Europe. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you enjoy the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And now, on to this week's episode. The World Today. The Columbia Broadcasting System presents a complete summary of all the important news of the world and reports from Columbia's correspondents in important world capitals. Tonight, we shall hear from Albert Warner in Washington and from Bob Trout, direct by Transatlantic Shortwave Radio from the British capital. And here in New York, John Daly will give you the news from many other parts of the world, the latest developments as received in Columbia's newsroom. And now, John Daly. There were many major developments today at home and abroad. The headlines... Germans claim victory in the Crimea. Russians report gains around Moscow and Leningrad. President Roosevelt signs the neutrality law amendments. Captive coal mine strike ties up production and Congress prepares anti-strike legislation. Japanese envoys begin negotiations with the President and Secretary of State Hull. Captured Axis ships revealed as German merchantmen. Those are the highlights. Now here are the reports on the Russian war. Berlin and Moscow are both reporting victories tonight and speaking in superlatives of their accomplishments. The Germans claim their victories in the south. The Russians claim theirs in the north. A special communique from Adolf Hitler's headquarters said that the Nazis had captured the city of Kerch at the eastern end of the Crimea and that the entire eastern part of the peninsula is now in German possession. The Nazis added that they had taken over 100,000 prisoners and military spokesmen in Berlin declared that their army might strike across the Kershensky Straits into the Caucasus without pausing to mop up the Crimea. Russian dispatches have not acknowledged the fall of Kerch. They said that fighting was still in progress around that city and also at the great Russian naval base at Sebastopol. Both the Russians were jubilant, rather, the Russians were jubilant about the results on other fronts. The Moscow radio quoted a dispatch of the news agency TASS, which said that Russian troops had counterattacked at Tula, 110 miles south of the capital, and the results was a panic-stricken rout of the German armies. TASS said that the Nazis fled, leaving behind them huge piles of shells, grenades, rifles, and even clothing and bowls of uneaten lentil porridge. Some Germans were caught asleep, and they abandoned their guns and ran down frosty streets in their underwear. Dispatches from Leningrad reported that the Nazi troops in that sector had been dislodged from positions they've held for some time. Those are some of the major developments overseas. In our own country, labor trouble took the top headlines. For that news, we hear from Albert Warner. We take you now to Washington. President Roosevelt has just now called off temporarily his scheduled trip to Warm Springs 
And with obvious irritation over the attitude of John L. Lewis of the United Mine Workers, Mr. Roosevelt prepares for action in the strike of the captive coal mines. A Congress which heard denunciation of Mr. Lewis in both chambers was apparently ready to act on legislation to take over the mines at a word from the president. But he was not to be hurried. The irritation of the White House was clearly indicated, however, at the end of a day in which peace negotiations had completely collapsed and the captive coal mines were closed and sympathy strikes were spreading to some of the commercial mines. An hour ago, Stephen Early, the president's secretary, made public the text of a letter from three steel company presidents who operate the captive mines and who negotiated with Mr. Lewis. Mr. Early commented that the White House was not releasing a similar letter from Mr. Lewis because he had given it to the press before the president had received it. As if to emphasize the White House sentiments toward Mr. Lewis, Mr. Early then handed out an exchange of messages between the president and another union leader, Daniel Tobin of the AFL Teamsters. Mr. Tobin had wired that a dispute involving 225,000 truck drivers had been submitted to the National Railway Mediation Board for final settlement because of the serious conditions in the world. Mr. Roosevelt replied to Mr. Tobin, you expressed to me the spirit of fair play and patriotism which I have always believed existed in the hearts and minds of American labor and unionists. What a fine Thanksgiving it would be for us all, said the president, if leaders in the other fields of labor would follow your example. A day of swift activity began with Mr. Lewis reporting to his union policy board members failure of negotiations. Tearing the air with his explosive words, Mr. Lewis paid his respects to steel companies in general and Eugene Grace, head of Bethlehem Steel in particular. Mr. Lewis declared that the United States Steel and Youngstown Sheet would have signed the controversial union shop contract, but Mr. Grace refused. That multi-million dollar executive, with $1,200,000,000 in government orders, said Mr. Lewis, is standing there, unchanged, unaffected, cold-bloodedly determined to prevent any settlement. A little later, the three steel company presidents conferred with Mr. Ro Roosevelt and sent him two letters which the White House subsequently made public. One categorically denied Mr. Lewis's charge of a split among the operators. The other explained that failure of negotiations with Mr. Lewis explained them by saying the United Mine Workers had not deviated in the slightest degree from their demand for a union shop. We firmly and sincerely believe, said the steel company presidents, that the right to work in our coal mines or in any other industry should not be dependent upon membership or non-membership in any organization. There were bristling words on Capitol Hill, and Senator Connolly offered a resolution specifically empowering the government to take over the coal mines and to freeze the present status of the unions in them. While steel mills were facing closure, the president asked Congress today for $6,700,000,000 additional for the Army and $300,000,000 more for the Navy. The Navy disclosed that the merchant ship which it captured in the South Atlantic was a disguised German vessel on its way from Japan to France with a cargo of raw rubber and American-made automobile tires. It was with the handicap of domestic labor troubles hanging over the White House that the president went into conference on the critical Far Eastern situation today with Secretary of State Hull and the special Japanese envoy, Saburo Kurusu. They talked for one hour, double the scheduled time. No statement was issued, but in one quarter came the report that the United States was proposing to Japan as a first step toward settlement that it should withdraw from the Axis. There was nothing to indicate Washington was ready to promise Japan that freedom in China which it had been demanding. 
Caruso said many things were said. For further Far East news, we return you to New York. While Japan's envoys in Washington were talking about peace, reports from Shanghai said that Tokyo had asked the government of Indochina to admit 50,000 more Japanese troops. These forces declared the Japanese are needed for the defense of the French colony, but Indochina has not yet sent a formal reply. The addition of 50,000 troops would give the Japanese an army of about 100,000, which would be about two and a half times as many as the Indochina government agreed to admit last July. In spite of that agreement, the Japanese are said to have more than their quota in the colony already and are rushing in still more. They are also staging realistic war games within rifle shot of the border of Thailand. In Tokyo, a member of the House of Representatives, Gotaro Ogawa, called upon the Japanese government to put the entire strength of the nation on a war footing. He said that all expenses should be subordinated to military costs. He declared that nothing must stand in the way of Japan's Far Eastern program. He said it is right for Japan to try to tide over this crisis through diplomatic means. But needless to say, there must be a limit which cannot be crossed in protecting the existence and the prestige of the Japanese Empire. And now the Japanese House of Peers is expected to pass an extraordinary appropriation for military purposes. London, too, is vitally interested in the Pacific, but it has also immediate interests at home. So for the news from the British capital, Bob Trout reporting, go ahead, London. London tuned in to the British news broadcast tonight and heard a report dominated by news of the United States. Leading everything else on tonight's BBC home broadcast were five headlines. Since the night's announcement of the American Navy's capture of a masquerading Axis ship, said the British announcer, a German motor vessel has been brought into Puerto Rico. President Roosevelt has asked Congress for huge new sums for the Army and Navy and has signed the Neutrality Revision Act. The American coal strikes seem to be spreading. Japan's special envoy has conferred with Mr. Cordell Hall and the President. There has been more news about United Action in the Far East to check any Japanese aggression. So at the radio headlines. And that is the news which British listeners heard tonight. The reports here said that the German vessel was loaded with a large quantity of raw rubber as well as American-made automobile tires. This seems to support opinions which have been recently expressed here that the Germans are more worried about rubber than about oil. About the coal strikes, the British public has no very clear idea. Most people here cannot sit together. Philip Murray's Detroit speech yesterday with John L. Lewis's strike call. That puzzles them. And so does the CIO, A.F. of L. Hughes. They don't understand the terms collective bargaining and closed shop. But when you explain them, they will tell you that workers in Britain have had those things for more than a generation. They don't have them now. A war is on. But the government has solemnly promised, and a steady flow of government speakers keeps on promising, that when the war is won, the rights and privileges of labor will be restored. The way government folks may usually express it is, we must give up our liberties now so that we will have liberties to enjoy after the war. There was considerable surprise here when Russian ambassador to the United States, Litvinov, American ambassador to Russia, Steinhardt, and Sir Walter Monckton turned up at the Tehran airport in the plane from Kledestep. 
the Foreign Office of Iran had officially notified the Russian Embassy and the American and British legations at Tehran that the passengers were proceeding by automobile after their forced landing. This Tehran airport has recently been improved and is now used by British planes. Air service between Tehran and Kibbutzhev is scarcely more than two weeks old. These are the first distinguished passengers reported to have used the service since it began, but it's likely they won't be the last. Bad weather recently has kept bombing planes inactive, but Royal Air Force fighters today attacked points in northern France. Although no German bombers have flown over London for some time now, the blackout is still rigidly enforced. The thinnest line of light peeping out on the darkened street from one of your windows brings a prompt call from the police. But a 56-year-old man has just been fined $4 for not drawing the shades at all. His defense was simple. He said, I didn't know you had to pull the blinds down. I'd never heard of the blackout. I return you now to Columbia in New York. In Vichy, the French Foreign Office took official notice tonight of the many reports that the Pétain regime is about to decide on full collaboration with the Nazis. A formal statement characterized the stories as premature, if not actually tendentious propaganda. The French officials admitted that negotiations on French-German collaboration have reached a new phase as the result of recent conversations between Pétain and Otto Abetz, German representative in Paris, but they insisted that there is not at present any question of changes in military, naval, or police arrangements. The Vichy government also denied rumors that General Weygand, who is not a favorite of the Nazis, is to be ousted from his post as commander in North Africa. There have been several rumors about Weygand. One, that he was to be appointed Minister of War to succeed General Hunziger, who was killed in a plane crash last week. Another, that Vichy intended to get him away from the European scene by appointing him ambassador to the United States. Still another, that General Dents, who fought against the British and the Free French in Syria, was to get his post in North Africa. But all these reports, said Vichy, are incorrect. Vichy also denied that French troops would be placed at the disposal of the Germans, that French troops under German command would be permitted to occupy the Bordeaux region, and that there would be a change in important French military commands. And that's the story of developments, or the lack of developments, in Vichy. The Germans are also planning to extend their civil administration into Russia. Dr. Alfred Rosenberg has been given the job of restoring public order and public life, as the Nazis put it, in the occupied Russian territories and in the Baltic states. And the theories of Rosenberg give the Russians an idea of what they may expect under Nazi rule. For Rosenberg is an arch enemy of communism and Judaism, and the originator of the ideologies of the Nazi party. It was Rosenberg who drew up the Nazi program of religion, a program that calls for elimination of anything that conflicts with National Socialism, that substitutes Mein Kampf for the Bible and the German sword for the cross. It was Rosenberg who convinced Hitler that the pre-World War type of anti-Semitism could be imported into Germany. He once wrote, When we come to power, Jewish bodies will dangle from every telegraph pole between Munich and Berlin. And he preaches the doctrine that Christianity and Judaism are the religions of weaklings. Now, all civil administrations in occupied Russia will be subordinate to Rosenberg. His spokesman said that the return of private ownership in the eastern areas, as opposed to the communist theory of state ownership, would be within the scope of the Rosenberg administration. Several assistants will be appointed to rule various districts of Russia and the Baltic states under Rosenberg's direction. 
As to the permanency of the organization, Rosenberg's spokesman said that at present, its assignment is strictly a wartime function. And that's the world today.